caution, warning, be advised. The contents of the discussion about the 1949 St. Louis University exorcism may be unsuitable, unsettling, and rough for some sensitive listeners. Use caution, use discretion. This discussion lasts about an hour and 53 minutes. And I'm attempting to break it down into small segments for everyone's convenience. The keynote speaker, Thomas Allen, wrote the true story behind the movie The Exorcist and the older book, William Blatty's book, The Exorcist, from which the movie starring Linda Blair was made. Thomas Allen wrote the true story in the late, 19, late or early 1990s. He is the keynote speaker and he will be presented last after, I believe, two more priests will speak. So the information will get increasingly more challenging to hear for sensitive listeners. Okay, the first spoke, the first priest spoke in the previous segment, which was just posted in the playlist a few minutes ago. Okay, so once again, the information may be too rough, too shocking for some listeners. They did this not because they were necessarily trying to hide anything, but simply because both the archdiocese and the Jesuits believed it served no useful purpose to keep retelling the same story over and over again, and they did not want Robbie's identity known. And again, I think you have to remember, this is 1949. It's not 2013 where there's you know text messaging and instant messaging and 24-hour news and all that. There does not seem to be any reporting of the exorcism until later in the summer of 1949. Early in the series of events that occurred in Maryland, Robbie was visited by the Reverend Luther Miles Schultz, a, a, a Lutheran minister from a church near Robbie's home. In August of 49, Reverend Schultz, who had an interest in the, in the paranormal, told a Washington meeting of a group of parapsychologists that he had witnessed what he called poltergeist phenomena at Robbie's home. 
He did not give the exact name or address of the boy, but he did say that Robbie was later taken to a city in the Midwest. And we all know the real city in the Midwest is St. Louis, not that imposter Chicago. So anyway, <laughs> as, as one can imagine, reports of Schultz's remarks quickly found their way to several Washington newspapers, including the Washington Post. Officials of the Archdiocese of Washington were contacted for information, but the Archdiocese wouldn't provide very much. A small three-paragraph story did appear in the Catholic Review, which was a national semi-official Catholic newspaper. And it should be noted here that one of the readers of the Washington Post article in 1949 was an undergraduate English major at another fine Jesuit university in Washington, Georgetown University, and this English major's name was William Peter Blatty. It was Mr. Blatty who would use this article about the exorcism as the basis for his novel, The Exorcist, which first appeared in 1971. In the novel, the story is set in the Georgetown area of Washington, D.C., as opposed to St. Louis. Blatty changed the possessed person from a young boy to a 12-year-old girl, played by Linda Blair in the movie, and we'll get to that in a minute. And although the priests involved in the exorcism in the book are Jesuits, they are associated with Georgetown and not St. Louis U. Blatty did have communication with Father Bowdern about the exorcism, but Bowdern evidently did not provide him with many details. Bowdern, Father Bowdern did tell Blatty that he sincerely believed that Robbie was possessed by demonic spirits. Blatty does claim that he had access to, to Father Bishop's diary, but he doesn't indicate exactly how. Two years after Blatty's book, on December the 26th, 1973, which makes this 2013 the 40th anniversary of the release of the Hollywood movie, The Exorcist. The movie was directed by Bill Friedkin, was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, uh, including Best Picture. As one might imagine, uh, after the movie version of The Exorcist appeared, interest in the topic of exorcisms grew. More importantly for our story, once the general public knew about the 1949 St. Louis exorcism, more and more people were curious to learn about what really happened here. Since the 1973 release, two sequels and one prequel to The Exorcist have been made. Exorcist II, The Heretic, appeared in 1977, while Exorcist III came out in 1990. And the prequel, Exorcist, The Beginning, was released in 2004. And there have been a several home movie versions about the exorcism, uh, including Exorcists and In the Grip of Evil. In 1993, the most reliable and even-handed account of the events of the 1949 exorcism appeared with the publication of Mr. Allen's book, Possessed, the true story of an exorcism. What makes Mr. Allen's book uh, so special and sets it apart is that he was able to speak extensively with Father Walter Halloran, who, as I mentioned, assisted Father Bowdern and Father Bishop. And he was given a copy of Father Bishop's diary uh, of the events of the exorcism. Mr. Allen's own interest in the exorcism was, was piqued by another article in the Washington Post in which they discussed Father Halloran had uh, been interviewed about his involvement in the exorcism. Since his 1993 edition, Allen has published a second edition in 2000, and the major edition in this book was the transcript of Father Bishop's diary. Since the first edition of Possessed was published, numerous other books and now websites about the exorcism have appeared. The interest in the exorcism story and in creating many, many different versions of this story continues to grow. And that's all I have to say. Thank you.
have some time at the end for questions and answers as well. Now I'd like to introduce Father John Padberg of the Society of Jesus, director of the Institute of Jesuit Sources, who will speak about possessions and exorcisms, facts and fiction. Father Padberg. It's a cliche, I know, but as a matter of fact, it was a dark and stormy night, a November night years ago, when on the left bank of Paris in a Jesuit house, I laid myself down to sleep in the bed of an exorcist whose corpse had been removed from the room just a few hours earlier in the day. I was not out to seek thrills, and I assure you, nothing happened that night. But it's a good beginning anyway. <laughs> the man whose room I took and who had just died that morning, I was living at a Jesuit house in the outskirts of Paris doing research work and had to come into the city to go to various archives and libraries. And when I did, I'd stay at one of the other Jesuit houses. This particular day, they said, when I called, well, we don't have any extra rooms today. Uh, well, uh, well, uh, <laughs> sort of, uh, except uh, for Father de Tonkadex's room. I said, oh, well, you know who he was. I said, oh, yes, I do. Well, you doesn't bother you? No, I said, doesn't bother me at all. Father de Tonkadex, Joseph de Tonkadex, 1868 to 1962, was for 37 years the official exorcist of the Archdiocese of Paris from 1925 until 1962, which is when he died. He was a philosopher, a cultural critique, did a series of articles at various times on very famous French philosophers and people such as Maurice Blondel, Henri Bergson, the poet Paul Claudel, wrote a very interesting book way, way back in 1938, English translation, the uh, Nervous or Mental Illness and Diabolic Manifestations. He had hundreds and hundreds of clients through those 37 years. Uh, as you may know, some of you, the, uh, often enough at the time, one did not make an appointment at a specific time when one went to see a doctor, for example. It was just on reçoit, one receives between the hours of one and five, and whoever showed up in sequential order would come, therefore, to see the doctor, or in this case, to see Father de Tonkadec. His uh, office waiting room was, from all accounts, I didn't see it, was a sight to behold. But out of the hundreds, possibly thousands of clients over those years, week after week, he reputedly, and I think this is more than just repute, reputed to say that in all of these cases over all of these years, there were perhaps two real cases of diabolic possession that 
might be the subject for exorcisms. Uh, that throws a little cold water on what some of us may wonder about what's happening. I don't know whether there were or were not, but I thought I ought to begin at least with that story from a very reputable, careful scholar. If we talk about exorcism, uh, we're talking about effectively within the tradition of Christianity, and not just Roman Catholicism, the act of driving out or driving away an evil spirit, I'm not going to say what kind yet at the moment, by adjuration, that is, by solemnly charging or commanding this devil or demon or evil spirit to leave the individual that that spirit is involved with. And that adjuration or exorcism is especially by use and repeated use of a holy name or a major liturgical rite that obviously, if you're going to have an exorcism, implies that there is something or someone to be exorcised. You heard the tenor of one of those prayers from the old ritual of exorcism that we just had at the beginning from Father Stark. That is from the old Rituale Romanum or the rite of exorcism. This personal or evil or supreme spirit of unrighteousness shows up certainly in Jewish and certainly in Christian theology. There is no question that there is, those terms are used of some kind of an entity that is malevolent and perhaps malevolent by nature. Uh, a tempter, a spiritual enemy of mankind, an adversary of God, all of those terms are used. But in every instance, and no matter how long this phenomenon occurs, it is clear that this entity, whatever it is, is subordinate to God, and strange though it may seem, to put it this way, is able to act only by God's sufferance, that is by God's, some kind of God's permission, if you have to use, as we have to use, simply human words to express something about the work of the deity or divinity. Um, who was this um, demon or devil? We'll get to that in a few moments. But to clear the air, to begin, not to begin with, but to get to this, does Christianity officially teach that there is such a being, a malevolent spirit? Unquestionably, it does. And there is a long, long story of the development of the idea or doctrine of evil, of the evil spirit, of the fall of the angels, etc., etc. Unquestionably, it does. And as I say, not only Roman Catholicism, uh, especially at the present time, a fair number of people in evangelical or fundamental Christianity, evangelical Protestantism, are very strong and public about exorcism and the devil, and to my mind, somewhat too free and easy about how free and easy it is to perform this right and achieve some results. Does Christianity officially teach that the devil has acted on any specific identifiable person? No, 
does Christianity teach that the devil has officially acted in any specific identifiable circumstance? No. Does Christianity teach any specific identifiable physical attributes of this entity? No. Have people embroidered on what those specific attributes might be? Of course they have, and that's perfectly understandable. Well, then why, in some ways, does Christianity teach this? Because even if often enough it is figurative language that is used in Scripture, in both the Old and the New Testament, uh, nonetheless, the language is there, and the activities of the prophets, especially, and of Jesus himself, are there in Scripture itself, from which we get the first and foremost source of God's revelation. Strictly speaking, this particular, or this entity that is to be exercised, there is only one devil, really, within Christianity. Only one Satan, Satan, the adversary. Sometimes the devils is used as a plural for what more properly would be called demons or demon. The devil is meant to be this supreme adversary as it is portrayed in scripture, the supreme adversary of God who in some sense fell from grace and therefore is by God's sufferance possibly available there to tempt us, if not necessarily by physically taking over parts of ourselves, is there nonetheless to tempt us. The demons in the, demon in the Bible, from originally the Greek, especially for the New Testament, daimon, daimonos, means an evil spirit. Originally it meant some kind of a semi-divine being. Socrates would talk about having a daimon, a spirit that helped him to be who he was and to do what he did and to understand what he understood. Late in the Old Testament, quite, quite late in the Old Testament, these demons grew in importance in the frequency with which they appeared in the text and the activities that were imputed to them. And a large amount of Jewish speculation followed, apart from scripture itself, on what these entities were like, what they did, where they came from, how they acted, upon whom they acted. Increasingly, it was from that speculation that most people, and within a lot of Christianity, Christian teaching, would talk about these demons as fallen angels. That shows up very regularly then later within Christian theological teaching too. In the New Testament, it's perfectly clear that Jesus exorcised what he called evil spirits. Um, what was that exorcism about? What did it mean? Were there specific evil spirits, entities other than what we would regard as human beings uh, that Jesus exorcised. Certainly the statements are made that they are there and that they, those are the fundamental statements from which a huge speculative theology has been elaborated over the centuries. 
And most people are a lot more interested in that speculative theology, uh, witness the crowd here, than if we had this afternoon a, a, a session on the speculative theology of the Trinity. I'll bet there wouldn't be one-tenth of these people here. <laughs> Yet the most fundamental doctrine within all of Christianity, revealed Christianity, is the Trinity. Is everything that we believe about God, specifically and for, let's take Roman Catholicism for the moment here, is everything that we believe about God specifically and formally and infallibly defined in nice, clear statements? You think so? There's one, certainly one fundamental doctrine within Christianity that has never been formally, specifically defined in any one of the councils of the church or by papal infallibility. And yet all of our faith depends on this particular one. Think for a moment what you think it might be. God is good. God is good. The whole of Christianity rests in some sense on that. If you don't believe that this entity that we call God, this supreme being who holds us, who brings us into existence and holds us and the whole of created reality in God's hands, moment by moment, century by century, eon by eon, if you believe that that's a malevolent spirit, what in heaven's name are you doing here and why do you bother try, presuming that you do try to be good and decent people? You'd be pleasing a, an evil spirit. You believe implicitly God is good. There are all kinds of things we believe that are part and parcel of our faith that, that are drawn from, deduced from, uh, logically sometimes, and in some ways put into practice simply by the way we live and act the things we see, the songs, the hymns we sing, the pictures we see, the stained glass windows in the churches that we go to. Most of our faith through the centuries until the invention of printing was taught verbally, orally, not in printing, and often enough only fairly late in invisible physical realities. In the New Testament, with Christ's power to overcome physical powers that demons supposedly could have had, as Jesus, for example, drives demons out of the Gerasene swine, um, is that fundamentally, mostly, most importantly, symbolic of Jesus' supremacy over both spiritual and physical evil, and is it especially symbolic of his conquest of spiritual evil and establishment of the kingdom of God? More than anything else, what Jesus is trying to tell us, this kingdom of God is to, that is to come is, as one of the prefaces, the Feast of Christ the King, a kingdom of justice and peace, of love and mercy and compassion. And it's that establishment of that kingdom that depends upon a good God and God's coming to us incarnate in Jesus Christ that the whole of our faith is ultimately about. 
All you have to do is look at scripture, Matthew 12, 28, Mark 3, 22, Luke 11, 20, Mark 5, 12 to 18, etc., 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 to see that Jesus does talk about demons and does talk about driving out demons. Most of us live much of our lives uh, surrounded, what well, we all do, surrounded by physical realities, things we can see and touch and taste and feel and so on. Representations of things. Interestingly, the representations of a demon in Christian art, that is to say paintings, not so much the little gargoyles that sit, you know, on top of the rain spouts in Gothic cathedrals, but paintings in Christian art only began at the end of the 11th and at the beginning of the 12th century. That's a long time for the faith to exist without it necessarily being nourished by physical portrayals of the demons. After that, they multiplied, and there are all kinds of, you can, you can see on all kinds of places, and especially when the Black Death came along in the 15th century, then is when the multiplication of those kinds of portrayals, physical portrayals of almost incarnate evil took place. Oh, something else that will surprise especially Catholics. Uh, when did crucifixes begin to be common? The cross was used right from the beginning of our faith as a symbol of God's victory over evil. But the body of Jesus on the cross, as far as I know, there is no representation of that until about the year 400, anywhere, anywhere in Christianity. But it's gradually that we see what these physical symbols are that represent for us good or evil. Now, if there is, such a thing as diabolic involvement with a human being. You have either two things, two, two kinds especially, and it shows up certainly in the book itself and with Robbie. Diabolic obsession is the hostile acts of the devil or evil spirits uh, besetting a person from the outside. Things fly, flying across the wall across a room, uh, beds shaking up and down, uh, windows flying open, crucifixes being hurled across the room with no one touching them. Technically, that's diabolic obsession. Diabolic possession is the state of a person whose body, note the word body, whose body has fallen under the control of this outside entity that we call the devil or the demon. It is certainly constant Catholic Christian theology that the soul of a person possessed, if that person is really possessed, the soul cannot be entered into by the devil. All kinds of ways in which the body supposedly can be entered into, and the examples, for example, from the book itself would, would make that clear. I could go on and on, and you don't want to hear more from me, you want to hear more from somebody else. The most interesting, and I will only mention one last thing, the most interesting in some ways case of possession within, within uh, Catholic spirituality and especially Jesuit spirituality, uh, Jesuit spirituality is part of Catholic spirituality, in case you have your doubts, um, is the case of Father Jean-Joseph Surin, S-U-R-I-N, 1600 to 1665. 
he was called much against his desire to do it, but his provincial asked him to undertake the exorcism of a convent of Ursuline nuns in the little French town of Loudun, L-O-U-D-U-N. Aldous Huxley wrote a famous, famous book called The Devils of Loudun, which was made later into a movie also. Well, you may think of that if you wish. He, was, he came to Loudun in 1634 to exercise this convent where the nuns were undergoing, let us say, the, the strange, let's just leave it at the strangest of physical phenomena, and apparently a good number of those physical phenomena were blasphemies against various articles of the faith, especially the Eucharist. He was getting nowhere with the exorcism for some time, and then contrary to all the rules, if you want to call them that, uh, he said, he prayed to God and said he would be willing to take on to himself that possession by the devil if God would release the nuns from that particular possession. Whatever happened, and there have been huge speculations from parapsychology to psychoanalysis to everything else, whatever happened for the next 20 years, from about 1635 to 55, uh, he was almost paralyzed in just about every way. Sometimes he couldn't speak at all for a year or two. Sometimes he could hardly move his limbs. Other times he was perfectly okay. Most of the time he was firmly convinced, he really was convinced that he was possessed by the devil. Was he? Was this a manic, depressive breakdown, breakdown of extraordinary kind? Who knows? But he was certainly convinced that the interior law of charity and love, the interior law of God's charity and love, would finally prevail. All of a sudden, in 1635, after those 20 years or so, uh, he, he, 1635 to 1655, he came out of it. He attributed to his prayers and the prayers of his brethren. He came out of it the next 10 years, was perfectly normal, and is one of the great examples of French Jesuit spirituality, Catholic spirituality, one of the great writers of the great century of French spirituality. So, at the end of all of this, was Robbie possessed? I don't know. What I am certain of, if I'm a Christian at all, and no matter what my interest in the devil, the fundamental thing we believe as Christians is that we, and all Christians, all peoples, as Pope Francis said, to use the term from St. Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, we have been rescued from the power of darkness 